1: you're listening to rock and roll part of the pantheon network and on this episode i have a conversation with gary valentine who played bass with blondie and co-wrote the first song on the first album ex-offender but gary left blondie before the second album and yet a song he wrote i'm always touched by your presence dear was recorded for that album and became a top 10 hit for blondie in the uk Gary released a solo single, the first one, backed with a brilliant song, one of my favorites of the era, called Tomorrow Belongs to You, which we just heard. And then Gary moved to Los Angeles, where he started a band called The Know. It defies logic, but The No never landed a record deal. And soon after, Gary quit the music business and became a writer. He has published quite a few books under his real name, Gary Lockman, many of which are about sort of the history of spirituality and the occult. It had been a while since Gary revisited his days as a punk rocker, but he was kind enough to reminisce with us for this episode.
2: Awesome! Thank you for talking to me.
3: My pleasure.
2: I've been trying to figure out what to ask you exactly <laughs> to, to, to get. Oh, do you to, want a little
3: time? You want a little time
2: <laughs> to get at the topics I want to talk about. I guess uh, obviously I'm uh, I'm putting together a series about power pop, but like the development right. and the genre and and that yeah. kind of thing. And um, but it seems like you come at it from. I guess from the punk rock perspective, that's what I'm. That's what I'm interesting, interested in. Oh, is, is the relationship right. between punk and power? Oh, oh
3: God! Uh, well, uh, well, they both, they both, they both have P. They both start <laughs> with P. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so there you go. So for those who know that, that means a lot. Um, uh, are you, I mean, are, are you rolling? Are you recording? Or are you just? so we just kind of? Is this, is this pre pre interview pre recording warm up? Yeah, well, I'm recording, but I'm. Gonna, oh, okay. I, I I didn't know if you. Were, I'm you gonna edit. I I, I edit it, So. Oh, okay. All right. Oh well, I, I wouldn't ramble as much. I mean, I mean, you know, I mean, it was called just like punk. Somebody called it that. I mean, and something somebody, somebody called it power pop. Right. I mean, when I was, you know, first playing in Blondie, and then, um, even before, just sort of hanging out in this this period after, the end of, uh, uh, glitter and New York Dolls and. This place called club 82 and just sort of when cbgb started uh becoming the place it, it was i don't know street rock new york rock on un- underground new york it didn't have a particular name and then punk magazine came out you know so then then and then the uk thing malcolm mclaren <clears throat> took the ripped t-shirt meme from richard hell and then you know brought it to here <laughs> london yeah. and um you know invented the sex pistols they were kind of like a punk monkeys they were the punkies kind of (laughs) and and then um you know and then there was new york it started to get more you know that 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 came over that sort of infected what was happening in new york and then more than in new york uh, across the states you know so you had the punk scene in um all these different cities and because they weren't new york or they weren't uh london they were often more royal than the king you know they were more sort of more punk than the punk because they had to really exert they were kind of kind of like well there used to be an old hire car rent-a-car uh company oh. i was still around avis Or uh, mm-hmm. they, they were numbered t- they're number two uh, so they had to try harder so uh that was their kind of pitch and um so that was the thing so in places like san francisco or you know uh wherever it was cincinnati or wherever we went on tour um you'd have little enclaves of the local um, kind of punk. I loved what happened in New York in, in that time, '74 and '75, um, before everybody got record deals, and then it became, you know, it, it turned into just another part of rock and roll. But um, I I was never really interested in that the uh, UK thing. The punk thing. I mean, the Sex Pistols and the Damned and people like that. I just thought it was a bit silly. And uh, my own, you know, my roots in music were I, I grew up during the 60s and it was just uh, listen to AM radio. Um, and um, they were just great songs all the time. So that was kind of implanted in me listening to all those songs you know the british invasion then you know the or the motown sound and then there was sort of the san francisco sound and you know the, so all that and so that's the kind of music i wanted to sort of do and then i also was influenced at the time by people playing people like television like you know i, I just like the, their kind of guitar sound and this this very kind of bright sound that they had that was different than the heavier kind of um punk kind of sound so you know i mean i i mean i I put out my own like the single the first one um back with tomorrow belongs to you so i guess that i mean i think i think that was new wave then i I don't know i I don't remember the chronology it much but so there was new wave but then there was power power pop was pop music that that was was, you know had a kind of force to it had a kind of high-end energy like the jam i guess right or something like that you know you know, I mean, uh, it's a shame that The Know, what we got on on, on record, w- wasn't quite what we were like. I mean, there's some live recordings because we, you know, we were pretty high energy. But I wrote, you know, fairly melodic songs. So And there were songs, you know, so the, it, it wasn't lo- you know, long kind of extended things and all that. And then you know, there are some other bands. I mean, I there was more of that for me in L.A. than in New York. So cause The Know started in Los Angeles in 78. And there were other bands like The Furies. And the text tones, and um, oh God I can't—I haven't thought of these bands in ages. Uh, and because they had a had a pop, you know, had a had a, had a beat, a beat sound. A, a, but you know, as I said, uh, L.A. had a very heavy uber uber punk scene. Yeah. Um, but you know, um, I mean, we have a certain claim to fame in in the uh, L.A. scene in, in the late '70s because the know we were the first band to open this place called Madame Wong's in uh, Chinatown. It's a chinese restaurant that um the owner opened up to rock bands playing or you know local bands playing um a couple nights a week and we were the first uh, my band the no and the furies and so uh, yeah we got that kind of scene going and then soon after that there was another place called the hong kong club and that hong kong cafe and that that was more punk so um you know there was that kind of uh, dif- different different um scenes different kind of um you know um musical tastes happening there but i mean I, I don't know how long you know what is power power how, how long did it last you know like to 1980 or something <laughs> 78 to 80 or i yeah, don't even know one
2: a lot of the bands seem to get two record deal two album deals so yeah. they all put out a second album that you know in like 81 <laughs> yeah and then yeah it kind of fizzled out after that um yeah. yeah. So, I
3: mean so who are some of the other bands that you're you're thinking about
2: or that you were gonna Well like I talked to Steve Allen yesterday from twenty twenty.
3: So they Yeah, yeah, we oh that's right. Yeah, we well they stole my drummer. Or he, he jumped ship and went to play with them. Uh no, we, we did some gigs with them. Yeah, I remember them a long time ago. Yeah, my first drummer, he 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 left my band to play with them. Was that Mike Gallo? <laughs> no, it was a guy named Joel Teresi. Oh, okay, right. I, I think uh um, um, they were already signed, I think, or something, and they, they just needed a drummer. I'm I'm pretty sure that's why he yeah, that's why he left us. Yeah. There you go.
2: And you had like the nerves. Which... Can't
3: get you can't get good help anywhere anymore. <laughs> uh um oh yeah, I mean I'm sad you have to forgive me because I haven't thought about this in ages. So yeah. Um now who's the other one I'm trying? Chris Stamey and people like that. And yeah. um if he counts as power pop. I mean there's a great band in San Francisco, the Ready Mades, A guy named Jonathan Postal was the head of it, and um, they were kind of arty, arty rock, but high, high, high energy, you know, pop songs with, uh, you know, kind of edgy lyrics.
2: So I, what, you, did you move to L. A. in '78? Is that when you? Uh,
3: '77, '77. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. So L. A. kind
2: of was transitioning from where hard rock was kind of dominating, like Van Halen and Quiet Riot and things. Oh, to yeah. Where yeah. punk and new I mean, wave kind of took over for a while.
3: I mean, L. A. was old school. You know, I mean, New York had it. New York was new. I mean, the thing about New York is you can be famous in New York and cross the river and nobody knows who you are. Mm-hmm. you know joke was you know oh, that band couldn't get arrested outside of new york meaning like you know nobody paid any attention to them so like the dolls the dolls were a big band in new york they new york dolls and you know they were kind of like the uh, at least for me and for people like me they were sort of you know a band that just went back to plain simple you know three chord rock and that you could play <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. uh and and but you know outside of new york they you know they they had no success at all so i mean new york could support it in la la was you know it, it just it was home you know it was home to mainstream you know rock and, and and very conventional rock and that was pretty much the attitude there so you didn't have the slightly you know recherche new york attitude i guess shades of velvet underground or warhol or something like that That kind of art scene that that could uh maintain it without having to necessarily um you know uh compromise and sell itself to the mainstream kind of music world but la wasn't like that but the idea was you know it might be easier to get a record deal there because precisely because of that right. so when I, I i went out there i went out there uh, uh, august 77 and then uh uh it wasn't until 78 that um i forget what day uh, the date exactly but we we the you know we opened for the mumps which were one of the new york bands uh lance loud from the loud family mm-hmm. and uh, he was he was in the warhol kind of um, world uh and um yeah so we did a quick unannounced you know short set and then we just started playing and then pretty soon after that we were playing in new york as well so we were a bicoastal band we were both in new york and in la um and for those couple years 78 to 80 we were going back and forth I mean for a while we were a house band at uh there was a place in New York called Hurrah. So that would have been about yeah that would have been like 78 late 78 79 and we were playing there I don't know every other weekend and doing very well <laughs> you know amazing you know we, we, when I think about the amount of money we were making back then um you know for the time it was it was um, and we were only a three a three piece mm-hmm. so so we split you know so um it was a good chunk of what we made and um yeah it was a fantastic time and um I mean there were bands like the student teachers. I mean, they were weird. They, they weren't power pop, but they were one of the kind of um strange kind of arty, slight, slightly arty, slightly off center <clears throat> uh band. Um Jimmy Destry from Blondie was producing them and things like that. So I mean there was and that but also in New York you had the no wave, which was the, the real radical art rock kind of thing. Klaus Nomi and um, you know, a variety of other um avant guard kind of um artists um we took over that scene and then by that time i was i mean I, I i sort of lost track of things by about 1980 81 i mean after i played with iggy i did two tours with iggy after the the no we we, we we did we did a few recordings but we didn't get a you know a deal and so i sort of um just by chance i wound up playing with iggy because the guitarist rob dupre who played in the mumps mm-hmm. he was playing with Iggy. I'm, and Ivan Kral, who was um, uh, well, Ivan crawl played with Patti Smith. He played with Blondie for a while uh, in, in the very, very early days before I was involved. He was playing with them, and he jumped ship. And so, at the last minute, <clears throat> Rob asked me if I wanted to go on tour. And he, sure. And he said, w- uh, "When are we going?" He said tomorrow, you know, sort of thing. So like, I got grabbed my Stratocaster, grabbed my Stratocaster off the off the wall, as it were, and um, you know, hopped on board the 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 bus, the tour bus. Um but after that, so yeah, the end of eighty one, um, I sort of gave it up. So um yeah, so that was like at that point I, I just completely went in a different direction. I mean, I, I, at that point I had stopped listening to any pop music. I, I, I made the fatal mistake of, of, of start, started listening to some classical music. And I just realized my, <laughs> this, this stuff is just uh, incredible. Some of the things I was listening to at the time and a funny thing, I'm rambling on, but a funny thing was at that time, I was one of the first people in New York to have a Walkman, mm-hmm. um, because my girlfriend at the time was a model and she came back from Japan, from Tokyo with, with the Walkman. And nobody had them in New York yet. And she said, "Check this out." And um, I used to go to um, the original Barnes and Noble um, bookshop um, on Fifth Avenue, and they had a um, a sort of you know discount bin of these cassettes. And I, I would just randomly grab different, you know, cassettes of different classical composers I I didn't know anything about or just, you know, heard the names or something. And we pop it in the Walkman and walk around New York and everything was suddenly like a soundtrack. Yeah, you know, everything was like a move. And it was like that was incredible, you know, at the time. You know, I mean I'm, I'm, and pe- people actually stopping and looking and saying, Oh, what is that? You know. I mean now now, you know, now they're as you know, you ubiquitous, <laughs> nobody notices anything anymore. Um but I can remember at the time, yeah, so that was to me sort of um a different series of events and changes in my life and things I was doing that led to what I'm doing now. You know, I've been a writer now for the last, well, 25 years, more or less, since I moved to London. So the interest, the things that I'm writing about, my interest in them started back then. And so that kind of turned me, drifted, you know, turned me in a different direction as well. Uh, but no, I mean, I, I at that time, I, there was some really, you know, uh, good bands um it's it's a kind of lost time i think because i think even that whole new york time is sort of it's not really as i mean people know it but it's not quite i don't know
2: well the new york thing was so um eclectic like all the bands were so different from each other that are kind of lumped yeah. together because i guess because they were they were different from the mainstream in their own ways so that's how they I guess that's how they bonded or whatever was They all appreciated what each other were doing, but they were all very different, you know.
3: No, you're right. There, there wasn't a recognizable kind of icon, as it were for that scene. or I guess I guess maybe you know, when Patti Smith was wearing those blousy white uh, sh- shirts with the, the skinny black tie, that kind of being, which is sort of an homage back to the '60s. Uh, And again, that's only about 10 years. I mean, and also at that time, I think another thing that was happening in mainstream music was this return to roots. So by the early 70s, there was a kind of reaction to the the um, top-heavy, almost operatic music that was coming out of bands like Yes or Emma sleek and Palmer and these supergroups. And you had to go to the Juilliard School of Music in order to play in in a rock band. Um, And then you had, I know there was a band called Sha Na Na, that did all the covers of the doo-wop and you know the fifties music, and then even people like Chuck Berry and Jerry Lee Lewis and Little Richard were making comebacks, uh, and John Lennon had you know did that album of the old old hits and all that. So there was a feeling, there was a kind of nostalgia, and um, I think that was one of the things that was different in the New York scene from from the U K scene because in, in in New York people like Patti Smith and Blondie and others would, would do a kind of homage to, you know, um, just 10 years earlier, you know, from the, from the sixties back to the kind of roots as it were. And the whole idea that it was very simple music too you know, three chords that, that was something. And as you said, you're right, all the bands were different. I mean, they, they had that in common, that it was this kind of stripped down. It wasn't part of the mainstream. It, it, it was a kind and, um, it was, uh, and it was very much about where about where they were living, where the bands were living. A lot of the songs were about living in New York, you know, mm-hmm. um, so the television songs, the Blondie songs, the Ramones songs, <laughs> 53rd and 3rd and all that. It's all about there. And so it isn't this just, hey, let's rock and roll, brown sugar or whatever <laughs> kind of yeah. stuff, which is great songs. But it's very, you know, it's very, this was like people. And of course you had the, the influence of um, the, 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 the poetry that Patti Smith and Verlaine and Hell, they were doing that as well. So you had this influence from French symbolist poetry, which, you know, lends itself to the lyrics and this life of living on the street and all that. So it had it had, a, it had an authenticity to it. And, yeah, it, it, there wasn't anything specific. You know, maybe sunglasses you know, or something. You know what I mean? But there wasn't, like, it, it wasn't or black, you know. I mean, I, I remember at CBGB, I mean, one of the other differences between, say, New York and, and the UK was in CBGB. People didn't, like, and all that that much you know it was kind of like everyone was kind of cool um and then when we went to the uk in uh, 77 uh, on tour with with television everybody went crazy you know <laughs> i mean the people that were into it were like yeah it was, it was like my god you know they they don't they, they really know how to enjoy themselves here You know, <laughs> they went mad whereas like in, in new york everyone was kind of you know trying to keep their cool so it was re- real different um and you know it was the art influence there where they weren't and also, um, it wasn't political in New York where, at least with the Sex Pistols and I guess the, uh, Clash and some other bands, there was a sort of political edge to it, because that wasn't really what was happening in New York either. I guess they, the rock had its political sort of scene in the 60s already, and so it was like coming out of that.
2: It seems like I get the impression that Blondie started out as almost like a club, like a novelty act like when they had three singers and stuff like that but mm. then they developed into a more serious band with more serious songwriting is that is that true or
3: well that's... I mean certainly when I joined yeah sorry that that that's a dry <laughs> poker-faced uh, <laughs> joke there uh, but well I mean you know the history of I mean they were you know Debbie was on the scene for a long time she was part of that glitter well she was she had a band in the 60s the wind in the willows She's the- She you know she worked at Max's Kansas City. She was a Playboy bunny, so she did a lot. And then she had several different incarnations in this early '70s scene that was sort of the glam glitter. You know, she had a band called the Stilettos. I mean, that's the first time I saw her on stage. When I saw the Stilettos play at Club Eighty Two, which was this drag club in the East Village that bands like the Dolls played at. And then when that that when that scene sort of went down, when CBGB started and it was very different too because the glam scene was like, you know, very dressy and wild and extravagant and flamboyant. And, um, you look at early pictures of television, they're wearing old clothes coming from the charity shops and nobody, nobody did that. It was so very, it was just cut down and drab. And then hell kind of made it abstract by having the, the torn t-shirt, but it just was pe- people got old clothes from the charity shops. Cause that what, that's what, you know, you could afford. And then one of the one of the fun things with you know blondie is um we, we once found um this 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 uh sort of cache of 60s clothes that the shop in hoboken this is before hoboken became a very fashionable place that it is now apparently and, and that he didn't want it was in the storeroom and you know he let us get at it, it was all this great stuff you know like pinch um you know tab collar shirts and um pig leg trousers and things like that and so we we kind of you know got that's that that kind of look was kind of like the early trademark you know blondie for that too so it was a very different thing that than the the earlier kind of thing that was happening and yeah so debbie reinvented herself as this um because when i first played you know we did half of the tunes were covers Mm -hmm. uh debbie you know she had some had some, and then I, I started writing. I was <laughs> I I had spent the years whatever a year or so living in a, a sort of storefront in um, East 10th Street between First Avenue and Avenue A, and I was writing lots of bad poetry. Well, well, you know, I wasn't going out of my way to make it bad, but I didn't have to do much. And um, that that later got turned into writing songs. You know, this. Um, I mean, I was in the right place at the right time. I, I, and the drummer Clem, I, I knew him from high school. Nice to see him play in all the high school bands, where where they would do cover tunes of the Allman Brothers and Santana and all that sort of mm-hmm. thing. And then, but he he was he was yeah, Clem Burke. He he was the, he had this sort of you know sort of antenna for what was coming up and what was cool and all that. So he was one of the first ones to catch wind of what was happening in New York. And then when he answered their ad in in the Village Voice, he started playing with them. I started going to their shows. And then when they lost Fred Smith to join Television, because Richard Hell left Television to start the Heartbreakers with Johnny Thunders from the New York Dolls. He said, Why don't you come and audition? That's so how I wound up playing because I I could kind of sort of almost maybe play, you know, on the bass at the time. And that's what he really needed to do. And um kind of learned learned how to do it um, you know, in, in situ, as it were, you know, like on the spot. And that was great about it too. You know, again it wasn't every, every Clem was the best musician, um in those times. And and we learned how to play and we got better playing together and all that. So I mean, there there was other bands like the Marbles. They were a band at the time. You'd call them power pop, but uh, nobody knows about them unless you're on the scene then. And they they had great um, songs that were sort of '60s influenced as well. There was a group called the Miamis who who were very fun. They were very clever. Um, two brothers, Tommy and Jimmy, and um, they wrote these very topical, um, funny but uh, melodic and, and you know fun fun songs. Um, and they they were a house band um, uh, for a long time, and we, we did lots of shows with them in, in the early days. So I mean, a lot of bands that you know didn't quite you know didn't make it, or or they're caught on some of these live recordings. I mean a power pop band I would say would be The Fast, but yeah. they were like early, they were before all that, they were like in the early 70s, The Zone Brothers, and yeah. they were like a a, who, a a kind of Who, you know, um, a sort of wigged out strange version of uh, New York version of The Who. then people sort of transformed, you know, I mean, I know, uh, the marbles turned into kind of like a disco band and the, you know, blondie sort of became a disco band they, they had, the, I guess one of the first big disco hits, um, you know, the mainstream, it, it, it's what launched them, you know, and that was an old song. We did, we just used to call it the disco song "Heart of glass. That was right. just this throwaway song, throwaway song that they, they used to do as a joke. So it was, uh, yeah, it was fun. I'm, I'm rambling.
2: No, yeah, I was going to, I was going to mention the Fast, but I was thinking of them while you were talking about the the Marbles and Miamis, yeah, they were, and the Fast are really interesting because they kind of were a glam band, and then they were almost, mm. they were almost a punk band, too, <laughs> so they, mm-hmm. they really kind of tried everything, or they were, they kind of fit yeah. in to all that, all that New York, that whole scene, they, yeah. Well, there was
3: this. they said this this early, like the Harlots of Forty Second Street. I mean, right. again, they were like a um, the, fa- the fast. I remember the seeing the fast name on bills that, that shows with the group called the Harlots of Forty Second Street, who were just the kind of clone of like the Dolls. And mm-hmm. um, and then they they became part of the. They were more of a Max's band than a CB's band. Though the the fast.
2: Did you happen to see Cheap Trick when they played Max's in '76?
3: No, I didn't. I I didn't I didn't see them, but I. Um, I, I, yeah, I, I got to know the drummer when I was, <laughs> I was playing bass on an album uh, before I started the the No in L.A. This guy named Moon Martin, um, who wrote a few hits, and um, Craig Leon, who worked on the first Blondie album. He he knew I was in L.A. and I was, you know, wasn't doing anything, so asked me if I would play bass on this album. And um, in in one of the other rooms it's bunny right bunny carlos yeah, was yeah. the drummer mm-hmm. yeah in one of the other rooms they, they he was there working on something and um God, i'm trying to remember i can't remember his name right now the fellow who's the drummer in the dwight twilley band he, he Phil uh, Seymour. yeah phil seymour yeah he, he he and i were working on on the moon martin album and then we all phil seymour Funny and myself, we all got on this pinball machine, which was rigged to let you win all the time. <laughs> so it was, it was, you know, it was just like, bang my made, yeah, here I go. So it was fun. Yeah, that was fun. I mean, I, that, that album, I, I don't, th- I, I didn't even have a copy of it, I don't think. And I, I remember my bass lines were so mixed in that they're barely, barely noticeable. It's kind of subliminal bass.
2: Tomorrow belongs to you. I really love that song, mm. and it's uh, mm. it, it has that. It definitely has a New York feel of like, of kind of in the vein of of rich of like uh the Voidoids, but it's uh, mm. Mm. Bo- it's bouncy and poppy and catchy, but at the same time, it's yeah, it's kind of got that New York artsy feel. And you mm. wrote that for Blondie, right? Or when you were in Blondie?
3: Uh, when I was in Blondie, yeah, we used yeah, and the uh, that's one of the sides. The other one is the first one. Yeah, um, and um, we there's a there's there's a live recording of um, Blondie doing the first one at the last gig I did with them. Kind of like you know i mean you know the lyrics are sort of serious and um and well i tell you for a time before i wound up leaving blondie um clem and jimmy weren't particularly happy as well and so for for uh for a time for a couple times we got together at rob dupre and uh we started working on just uh, so it was clem myself jimmy destry and, and rob Duprey. Working on um, some of my songs, and so we, we did we did that. Tomorrow belongs to you, and she did. We did some other songs that wound up in in no uh, kind of repert- repertory. Uh, but yeah, yeah, I mean that was um, yeah. I'm glad I did. I mean it's it's um, it's very much of its time, and and the first one is very much of its of its time too. I mean one of the things I like about the first one is that the I I do the guitar solo on it, so <laughs> I, mean, I play bass on the other on the uh-huh. other bits. Before I I came out with the no, and I played guitar. Um, on that. And um, I mean, the know we used to do a song called Scenery that was supposed to be on the first Blondie album and then got shelved and um, later turned up on something called Blonde and Beyond in yeah, the 90s. Yeah, I've some...
2: heard that the Blondie version of Scenery. Yeah.
3: And uh yeah that was a song that you know we we I, I did when I had uh I mean I, we did a version of Presence Dear I mean, one of the sad things, you know, for me is that um, there was some really good songs and they just didn't get recorded aside from some demos. Right. So, I mean, one of, you know, I always think, oh, well, maybe one day uh, people trawl uh, through, you know, the the strata of uh, pop cultural kind of history. So maybe someone will come across it and, and, and cover one of the tunes. And uh, I mean, and even one of the songs uh, when I was playing with Blondie again in the late 90s, uh, strangely enough. Ninety-six, ninety-seven. We did a recording of my song uh, Omo Fati," um, which is a song we did with the No. And that's Latin. It means "Love of Fate." And I, I was a big reader of Nietzsche at, at the time, and you know, still am, but um, sort of understand him a bit better, I think, than I did back then. Uh, yeah. So, but that we, that was supposed to be on this comeback album, and it, and it didn't make it, and it was this lost, Blondie recording. But it is actually it's up on YouTube now, so maybe it'll surface on some kind of you know recording there's a big box set a big blondie box set coming out i mean this is the, what the world needs more than anything else is another blondie compilation <laughs> recording so it's coming out so it's okay you know i can't complain i don't know if there's
2: much of a market for box sets anymore but...
3: <laughs> I, uh, I i don't know i mean the people doing it doing it for a while and yeah. they got in touch with me um, you know uh, my, my contribution to the liner notes and all that but apparently <laughs> it's coming out so i don't know
2: Makes no sense to me that the no didn't get a record deal. I don't under, I don't understand. <laughs> well, that makes
3: two, makes two. of us. Yeah.
2: <laughs> well, you must have yeah. had interest from lots of labels, I would think.
3: Yeah, we did. Um, we did a demo for Warner Brothers. We did another one. This is how that single "I Like Girls" came out, which I didn't want that to be the single. Yeah. That's completely unrepresentative and. That was for God. I forget who that was. I forget what company that was for. Planet. No, we did a lot of stuff. Planet. Yeah, and they i only put I, it I, out I think, in the UK,
2: right? It only came out in Yeah. The UK. No,
3: it was. It was. It was. It was like the. It was like absolutely. It was. I don't know. I think somehow, you know, I, I somehow. I don't know how should we say it? Not console myself about this, but I think well, perhaps I wasn't meant to be a rock star. Perhaps there's a reason why that didn't happen, so that I could go on and write 23, 24 books about esoteric philosophy and mm-hmm. and the occult who knows uh but yeah it would have been you know it would have been great if we actually got an album but i i, I think the thing is that you know what, what i heard from some people's whoops well, i forget the rock writer who wrote about this might have been ira robbins but he said something you know good band, great songs but he said too spare and brainy, meaning like it was too simple um in the sense that we're just a three-piece and the, the, the songs are too intelligent <laughs> you know mm-hmm. you know um so yeah, I mean, um, I don't know. I mean, yeah, it's a shame. What can I say? You know, I, um, we 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 should have we should have had at least one one album. And it's also a shame that aren't any videos. I mean, we we sort of left left the scene just before sort of the, the video thing started happening, and even in its sort of earliest kind of phase, there's some videos of me playing in Blondie, the notorious one where I'm like jumping all over the place. And then there's um, some some video of me. Uh, a show in San Francisco when I was on tour with Iggy. But there isn't any, as far as I know, any record of the no. I mean, that would be great if anyone ever, you know, videoed anything uh, of us. Um, uh, that, that would be fantastic if that ever emerged, but I haven't seen it. I mean, there's some, some stuff's on, on, on YouTube. And um, a few years back, well, it's quite some time ago now, I think 2000, 2003, put out this kind of, well, that's Tomorrow Belongs You, this kind of CD collection. That yeah, has, I have that, yeah. Uh, yeah a lot of old demos some live recordings and some stuff i did here in like 90 i don't know 98 99 2000 when i was um around then um after i'd played with blondie for this year and a half or whatever it was again and then this whole debacle about not not being involved um you know with their uh you know future reunion and uh blah blah but I had written all these songs you know I guess they said that was the brief you know go write some songs so I did and I hadn't written songs in a long time and so some of them turned up on this kind of um EP recording with um a group I had briefly called Fire Escape about 99-2000 here in London and that was fun it was fun to do that it was very different than stuff we did with the No. and it's it's different you know getting back on stage and singing in your 40s than it is when you're in your 20s so we did it for a while but you know after a while the the, well the writing just took over and then um, had two children so it was had to put something on the on the back burner or off the stove entirely so that was uh, that was that Um, so I haven't played in ages
0: cheap and I had time to kill I took a
3: I think one of the things that may have, um, uh, how should we say it, helped not get a deal, or was that there was a time when it looked like something was going to happen through a Blondie connection, and I, that was sort of in in the buzz around for a while. So it looked like, oh, he's he's a kind of taken property or something, but nothing did happen. It looked like something might. I was I did these demos with Jimmy Destri. I think the recording of Scenery that's on that Tomorrow belongs to you. Collection is is from that um, that 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 demo session. look like me because i don't know he was he was he, he was he was doing his own album you know and then he said oh i'm you know I'm, I'm gonna have not his own label but you know he's gonna be able to produce all these other groups and all that so but nothing came of it so you know I, you know as i said and then when that when that happened i i basically well i lost interest when i couldn't i stopped writing songs basically i mean i i, I enjoyed the the two tours i did with diggy because i was just a hired gun mm-hmm. you know it was sort of sort of like the wild bunch because for him it was a make-or-break tour. Um, his record company, I mean, it was Arista. They, uh, they they said he had to this album, which was the party album. They told him that he had to, you know, push it and it had to be a success. If not, then it, they weren't going to renew the contract. Uh, so it was kind of like last chance, and um, it was fun just to play and, and also play a lot of songs that I knew, you know, from the Stooges and all that. Uh, and obviously, you know, who, who wouldn't want to play with Iggy? You know, it's yeah. fantastic. Thing to do but after that i came back and i just didn't have any interest in writing songs anymore and i tried and so you know there you go so um yeah i went in a different direction hey so everybody at my uh, alma mater. The thing about LA too is like if you, you played all over the place. I mean, if you were going to be a, you know an active band and um, try to make some kind of income from it. So I mean, in New York there were like two clubs yeah. or maybe three, but in LA we all over the place. You know, we we'd be out you know Laguna Beach or you know <laughs> Santa whatever. You'd just be you'd be driving miles to get to the gig and all that. So uh, uh, and then the you know drives up to San Francisco or San Diego. Um, yeah. I mean, the furies were a good band too. I mean, they, 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 they had some really good songs. Did you know the nerves? Uh, I knew of them. Yeah. Um, and I think I met them mm-hmm. at some point. I mean, yeah, I met met a lot of people, uh, at different times. I'll have to go back and reread my, my book, New York rocker about it and see if, <laughs> remind yeah, myself. I
2: actually, I have that uh, book, but I didn't, I should have pulled it out, you know, and, uh, and flip through it. Uh, at least <laughs> before I talked to you, but I didn't. I read. I was That's read fine. through the booklet of the Tomorrow Belongs to You CD, but um, yeah. Um, you know the nerves were all wearing like white suits, and you know power pop came mm-hmm. to be associated with the skinny
3: tie thing, and and it turned into well, see that yeah. Well, I was doing that though. Yeah. I was doing that in Blondie, you know. Yeah. So uh, I mean, even that was kind of a, who was it? Legs McNeil or something somewhere? Something said, oh, there was the Gary Valentine skinny tie set. And then there were, you know, whatever, his kind of people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so it was that kind of thing. And, um, yeah, I mean, it was, you know, again, when I think about it now, it, it, it's, how should I say it? Um, that's 75, 76, 77. And you're looking back to a time that was about just 10 years earlier. I mean, that in itself is it just seems kind of odd. I think it was this whole thing about getting back to sort of the roots or, or the, fun, you know, the fun, I mean, you know, G L O R I A, you know, she, you know, Patty Smith, she's doing glory and things like that. So it's all getting back to this time. And it was, I don't know how to say it. It's funny to be nostalgic when you're that, you know, sort of young, I was 19 or 20. And for a time that was only you know a decade earlier, but there was something about the freshness I think of that music that, you know, was felt to be, Lacking in, in the, the, the the bloated and moribund world of you know, conventional rock and roll which you know Eventually just absorbs anybody anyway, you know, you're, you're only on the fringe for a while You Either you either you succeed or you die <laughs> And if you succeed you tend you no longer on the fringe and so you you know, you kind of add to it But you don't have that that aura of, of being sort of, you know, just on the cusp of something you know? Did you know Greg Shaw
2: when you were in LA?
3: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, not well, but I, I, yeah. I mean, I knew him. I mean, yeah. Um, you know, everybody saw everybody at all the at all the gigs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So at, at 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 the Whiskey and Go Go, at the Starwood, uh, Madame Wong's, um, even places like the Troubadour, which was from you know the earlier time from the '60s. Um, so yeah, you would see everybody at, at, at different gigs and all that. Yeah, it was a true. fellow named Steve. Steve. I was going to say the fellow named Steve Zappeda. He he did the first the my my first single, the first one, and then "Tomorrow Belongs to You." And then he also produced. He had something called Beat Records. It was Beat Records, yeah. Mm. And so he produced the, the I think the early Fury stuff as well. So you have these entrepreneurs around there. Fast Freddy, I mean, he was somebody who was around at the time. I, I, I see him is uh, popping up on sort of Facebook, you know. But he was he was a real rock entrepreneur at the time. And Kim Fowley. <laughs> Yeah, I was. I, you, you took you took the word out of my mind. I was just thinking, Kim, Kim yeah. Fowley. Uh, yeah, yeah, he was again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, you had you had um, you had all that, and then people, you know looking to sign up, you know, what, what was potential and, 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 and that's this old fashioned, Hey, don't worry about a kid. We'll change it later <laughs> if you don't like it <laughs> kind of thing. Um, yeah. So that, that, that seemed again, coming from New York, the stuff in LA seemed real old school to me. It was sort of like stuff I seen in the movies or television, something. It was strange, um, mm-hmm. in, in some ways, but yeah, it had that whole other whole other side to it. There, yeah. But yeah, I used to see everybody at, at all these, uh, you know, all the different shows.
2: Yeah, Greg Shaw, I have the issue of Bomp Magazine that he put out in March of yeah. 78 where he kind of first started to talk about mm. power pop as like a, a movement or a genre or whatever. And mm. yeah, it seems like power pop, like you're saying, it was a throwback to the 60s. But at the same time, it had it, it had the influences of everything that happened in the 70s to draw on as well.
3: Mm. Mm. Yeah, and I think it also had a kind of how to say there's a kind of um, not quite how to say it. It's a thinner kind of sound in a way mm-hmm. than the 60s sound. There's something streamlined mm-hmm. about it, um, and maybe that's I don't know. Maybe there's just something about not quite as naive uh, uh, in the sense of sixties because there you know there's such, regardless of what people are actually doing, there's a real sense of innocence and, and earnestness about mm. much of the from the sixties. That, by today's standards, just seems, my God, you know, what world is that? I think you had a certain, if not cynicism, but street street smartness, let's say, you know, um, was kind of um, something added to that um, that sound yeah, for me. And, um, yeah, and, it's, and, and again, it was a guitar, you know, guitar sort of oriented sound, which um, that's, I, again, I, I have no idea what's happening these days. I, I mean, whatever is considered popular music gets to me just peripherally,
2: so when you left Blondie, was it because uh you, you wanted more control over what kind of songs the kind of song and uh how the songs sounded and and the direction of it
3: oh oh, I was headstrong yeah and, no i uh <laughs> no I mean i yeah I, I basically wanted to play guitar in my songs yeah mm-hmm. and Um, I think I even said I wanted to sing one of them. So that was probably my death knell. But um, uh, I I certainly wanted to play guitar on my songs. And, uh, you know, I mean, it's understandable. Um, It's a shame because, um, again, I was was working on all the rehearsals and all the preparation for the second album. And I intended to play on the second album. And then I would, you know, depart on amicable terms. But um, their manager at the time... Called me and told me my services were no longer needed and all that. Oddly enough, it was on 4th of July, Independence Day, 1977. Probably just had come back or wasn't too long before we came back from the UK tour. And um, yeah, so yeah, I, I, one reason I, that was one reason. Other, Another reason this is my girlfriend at the time, uh, Lisa Persky, uh, she was pursuing her acting career and she wanted to go to Hollywood. Um, she was, did a lot of stuff in New York on Off-Broadway and all that. So um, full of confidence in myself and my powers and abilities, I said, "Well, you know, it was she, uh, whose presence I was in touch with, um, on this, on on, you know, my song about that." And so I decided, "Okay, I'll follow you out there after I do this album and all that." But other things happened, so I went out and started all over again. You know, and um... yeah, I mean, someone, I, uh, someone, some. Social uh, Facebook correspondent had mentioned something about Gil Scott Heron, and I saw, and I wrote a little note that I, I got to remember. When I first was went out to L.A. Um, to live, before I started to know, I, I worked the lights at the the Roxy, which was big, you know, mainstream rock club on on Sunset Boulevard. Mm-hmm. And one one of the bands, and one of the people who played. I, I was doing the lights or the spotlight for it. It was Gil Scott Heron. Yeah. So there you go. So yeah, Um but yeah. So then I just started. I started the know. The I was very happy. You know, it was it was great doing my own songs and singing and 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 all that.
2: Obviously, you were in New York at an amazing time to be in New York, and then you moved to LA at a pretty amazing time <laughs> to
3: be out in LA. So, mm. you know, yeah. I mean, it was great and going back and forth too. So we played yeah. LA, you know, New York, and we did these sort of mini tours up and down either of the eastern or western coasts so like uh in new york you know washington or boston or so on um played some strange places <laughs> we were playing salt lake city once and it was like a very strange place to play they didn't know what to make of us um we had somebody who was booking us and he was just booking us as this you know this hot new act from los angeles <laughs> and we'd book us in all these places and, and no one knew anything what to make of us you know because we weren't playing anything like what they might expect, you know, it was you know, spare and brainy,
2: <laughs> it was, it was like,
3: yeah, stripped down three piece rock, and I'm singing, you know, songs that are slightly intelligent lyrics, you know. So they really didn't know what to make of uh, this strange band,
2: and it definitely had a punky slant, you know.
3: Well, it was, it was, yeah, I mean, you know, again, uh, um. I, I how should I say? It? I wasn't a real musician, a real muso in that way. I mean, I learned how to play, you know, pretty much on 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 the hoof, as it were. I could do what I could do, and uh, they had that particular sound. And there was um, and we did some long, you know, we did a cover of uh, the Modern Lovers' um, Road Runner, and um, we did a cover of Velvet Underground's Heroin. We also did a cover of the Who, any um, anywhere, Anyway, anyhow. So we did some we did some big kind of you know uh, long sort of jammy sorts of things uh, mm. as well. But it was it had a rough edge to it. You know, I mean, it had a rough edge. Um, you know, what can you say? I mean, uh, maybe that's why you know we didn't get the deal. May, maybe if had I stayed in New York, we might have, because that was sort of more I don't know, open to experiment. Uh, maybe because we didn't have that smoother kind of sound that you're used to in L.A. But yeah, it had a rough edge, and it was it had a I don't know. Yeah, there was a there was a kind of. Um, I think we have sort of had a fragile sound in some ways, you know. And that that to me I have to say expresses a kind of innocence from the time. For me, it was it was about you don't have to be one of these big mainstream you know rock musicians to do this. This is fun. This this is what what they call here in in the UK. This is this is what a garage band does or a garage band. This is what it's kind of like what you if, if you could kind of play you did on the weekends, you know, with with, with your, your your friends. In the garage and that's something i did as a teenager so we, we you know we learned a few songs but we weren't great musicians but the fun thing was that you could you could play them and so that that's what made it pop that's what was fun about that time and also what made it possible for me and people like me to be able to play at that time because it wasn't about being a great musician it was about having a lot of sincerity and and you know honesty in that sense that it was an authentic kind of uh, experience you know you were you were you were playing uh singing about and all that and so and that's why I think there is a kind of you know fragile innocence and it, you know it, it was kind it was a risk you know it was a risk at times I think some of the people that we did demos for they just they didn't get that you know it was like oh god and these I remember I think it was the planet record once where I was there playing and and we're going through the song and finally the guy you know at the board said okay when's the singer arriving? <laughs> <laughs> I said, oh, so yeah, uh, um, yeah, I'm here. <laughs> so it's like, okay. <laughs> okay.